Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it wasn't a great worship set. I was just like, let's just keep singing. Yeah, give God the glory. You have Brett and Kevin and team of credit too. <laughs> hey, uh, we're in the middle of a re- series on Revelation. Really, in the middle is not even the right phrase. We're at the end of a series on Revelation. Uh, this week and next week, we'll stop, come back in January, wrap it up. Next week, we'll talk about the great battle of Armageddon. Well, you weren't as excited as I was. But anyway, today is a hard day. Like, here's a great way to describe it. Uh, yesterday, I watched the movie Inside Out. How many of you guys have seen that yet? Man, that's a great movie. Like, genius of a movie. Um, but I feel like that movie today. Because while there's great celebration, there's great sorrow. And I don't fully know what to do with it. This message is going to make all that come alive. But, like, we've, we've got baptisms all day today. Um, I don't even know what the exact count is because I've been out doing other things. But I know there's at least nine kids getting baptized through our family celebration throughout this morning, this afternoon. Yeah. Great. It's fantastic. Three little babies will be dedicated. It's just a cool day. And yet, I'm also standing here knowing what just happened in Paris and knowing what happened with the pastor's wife downtown and Indianapolis is in the national news because of it. And that's the world we live in. It's this mix of sorrow and celebration. And uh, as a part of that, I know that um, we worship a God who understands both. What we're going to see today in the Bible is uh, maybe what some of you have heard your whole life about God. So this is like no new thing to you. But what we're going to look at today is how God reveals himself. And the thing is, this isn't the Mr. Rogers Jesus that most of us would like for him to be. This is that other side of God. So we know that God is love, but we also know that love doesn't just mean hugs and sunshine and roses. It means something. It means, for instance, if you were walking through the woods, let's say you were hunting and you came along a little bear cub and you're like, oh, hey, that's good bear cub meat. I don't know. I've never tried bear. But anyway, so you pull out your gun and you shoot the bear cub and as soon as you pull the trigger, mama comes out of the woods. What do you think is going to happen next? It is not going to be pretty. And I don't know that you got a big enough gun. Let's just put it that way. Here's another example. What if you um, offend uh, or abuse another man's wife? Now, some of you, you, you don't have very good, strong husbands, and that's another sermon for another day. However, let me just tell you, it doesn't go over well, does it? How about this? What if you take a couple airplanes and fly them into some of the, the, the most important buildings of the most powerful nation on the face of the planet? What happens next? It's not pretty, is it? This is kind of what's about to happen in the book of Revelation. So as we get to these chapters, 14, 15, 16, right before the very, very last battle, the battle of Armageddon, right before we get there, what we see is God says, he slams his foot down, he says, that's it, I've had enough. And it's like a parent who uh, keeps telling their children, Stop, stop, stop. We're telling the neighbor kids, you stop picking on my son. You stop picking on my daughter. And it doesn't quit. And all of a sudden, daddy's had enough. And it's hard because what we're going to see about God is, is not, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. So real quick, for those of you visiting with us today, we, we welcome you. If I do my job well, I just want you to know God is love and he loves you. And I hope that becomes clear, clear through today. If that isn't clear, then I failed to do my job well. And uh, I just pray the Holy Spirit helps you to see that. For those who are believers in this room, there's a powerful, two or three really powerful messages for you. I'll try to highlight them as we go. But um, I just need to stop and pray. Let's just ask God to anoint this message. Let's just pray. Father God, uh, we're about to talk about that side of you, that justice side of you, God, that every single one of us wants, especially when we've been hurt and we've been wronged. But God, um, it's still not pretty. 
when the God of the universe, with all the power and the resources of eternity at his hands, decides enough is enough and it's time to pay back his enemies, it's a bloodbath, literally. And uh, God, I just pray right now that you would help me to do justice to your word and to who you revealed yourself to be in your word and um, convict all of us, Lord, of our lives and our need for Jesus as our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, um, there's a lot of things I'd like to say, but I, I don't have time to say them all. I know that'll surprise you. So, in this book of Revelation, there are some things I need you to have wrap your head around, and I'll, I'll go quickly, and hopefully some of them make sense later. So, a guy named John, the Apostle John, wrote the book. He wrote it in what's called apocalyptic literature. It's a style of writing, and that's all. So, it's very metaphoric. There's all these words, and they all mean something. In the book of Revelation, there's a lot of numbers, but when we get to Revelation, we don't count numbers. We weigh them. And what that means is when I get to 12, I don't go, oh, yeah, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I get 12, and I go, why 12? What does that mean? And there are all these numbers in Revelation. They all essentially mean the same thing, but they mean it from a different angle. So 12 and 10 and 4 and 3 and 7, they all mean completion, but what that means is when you look at it, it's the complete number of something. When you see 4, it stands for completion for things here on earth. So you'll see phrases even today like every tribe, tongue, language, nation. 4. Why? Because it's saying every single person on the face of the planet. We get into heaven and we see this number 144,000. In case you're not sure, no math at Bible college, but excuse me, I checked this on a calculator. Actually, I read it in a book, but 12, because I'm not sure how to use calculators, no math. I'm just kidding. 12 times 12 is 144. Times 10 times 10 times 10 is 144,000. So why that number, 144,000? Well, because God is trying to say this is the complete number of all who would ever love him. And my example for this is in the Old Testament, why 12 tribes and not 13? Why in the New Testament, 12 apostles? Why is it when Judas hangs himself, the apostles, very first thing in the book of Acts go, we need to replace him. We can't have 11. So they take two guys, uh, and, uh, I think it's uh, Matthias and um, Simon Bar-Joseph, I think is what it is. And uh, they, they literally draw straws and let God choose. Which one will be the one to replace it? Because 12 needs to be the complete number. That's the number. It stands for completion. Why 10 commandments and not 11? God couldn't think up an 11th commandment? I'm pretty sure he could do that. The whole point is 10's the complete number. That was the number that was needed. Also interesting, by the way, that there are four that represent God at the very beginning, six <clears throat> after that. And since six is the number I'm talking about right now, we see later in the book of Revelation, last week we talked about this, six, six, six is the number of the beast. All that means, guys, is that it's not seven. In the same way that three represents God in heaven because he's holy, 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 because he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three, 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 because he's the God who is and was and what? Is yet to come. There's three. So in the same way, we see six repeated three times because Satan is trying to mimic or parody God. That's as best as I could do. If that didn't make any sense, you need to go online and listen to the rest of the series. We're almost at the end of the series. There's a lot for me to cover. I will read this great quote by Mark Moore, though. This will help a little bit. What there is in the book of Revelation are three sets of seven judgments, and each one means a little something different, but they all are essentially saying something similar and something different at the same time. Mark Moore summarizes it well. That's the guy who spoke here a few weeks ago, by the way. He says this. The first of the seven series were the seals, chapter six and seven. They showed us how men suffer on earth from evil men's wicked schemes. You need to think about the pastor's wife. You need to think about what happened in Paris. As a result of the seals, the saints of God were sealed. The church stood victorious in a world of woe. Then came the seven trumpets, both natural and supernatural afflictions. Their purpose was to call men and women to repentance. 
Or perhaps, more realistically, they provided an opportunity for wicked men to repent. But when they don't repent, however, it demonstrates that God is just when he judges and punishes. They had every opportunity to turn to God. Therefore, they have no excuse when God turns on them. And so now we come to the final cycle. These sufferings are not for purifying the saints, nor are they for calling sinners to repentance. This is raw, unadulterated wrath straight from the throne of God. Okay, well, with that kind of setup, let's just go ahead and look at it. Before we jump into the actual text where we see the wrath of God poured out, it is not pretty. Let me just warn you. Let's ask this question. Why is God pouring out his wrath? The question actually comes up in the book of Revelation itself. Earlier in chapter 6, what we saw when we saw these horsemen of conquest and war and famine and disease and all this bad stuff that's happening, and the believers are suffering. And what we see in chapter 6 is the believers are in heaven, and they're crying out to God for, for God to do something. Here it is, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the lamb, that's Jesus, broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. Notice why it is they were killed. It's because they were witnessing for Jesus and they were faithful in their lives. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Hang on to that for a second. Notice the people of the world belong to where? This world. In the book of Revelation, this is the whole point. There are earth dwellers and there are heaven dwellers. Heaven dwellers are people who love God and live this life as if heaven is their home. And so they don't worry and stress out about things here. They enjoy life here knowing that it's going somewhere. And this isn't going to be it forever. The earth dwellers, however, love this life. Consequently, they hate God. And so what's happening is these believers who now are literally in heaven, they're crying out to God, how long, God? How long until you avenge our blood? And his answer, verse uh, 11, then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. In other words, what Jesus said is, mm, when more people die. Okay, now, let's just, just think out loud for a second. How many of you, if you were in a kingdom, and there was a king, and we don't talk like kings anymore, but let's say you were in a kingdom, and there was a king, and, and, and there's a war going on, a real war, and, and here's what the king says. The king says, hey, you're going to go to battle for me. Great. Give me a big sword. No, you don't need a sword. Uh, how about like a catapult? No, you don't need those either. Can I get a stick of bubble gum? No, you don't need any weapons. So what am I going to do? You're going to pray. And then what? And then die. And then what? And then go to heaven. And then what? And then wait for me. Wait a minute. Jesus, you're sending us out into a battle, and I'm not allowed to attack them the way they're attacking me. I can't fight back the way they're fighting me. What kind of a kingdom is this? Okay, fine. So when are you going to make right on me giving up my life for them when more of you have died? Can I get a new king? Like, can I vote on a new guy? But you wouldn't dare do that as the book unfolds. But that's essentially what's going on here because God has said, and you gotta get this. If you don't get this, you don't get God. God has said, not yet. Why not yet? You gotta understand that because God is patient. He doesn't want anybody to perish apart from knowing him. God doesn't want anyone to die and not know him. So he's willing 
to allow his children, those who love Jesus, to die here on this earth for his name and for his glory because he knows he's got all eternity. He'll make it good and right. But we don't wage war the way the world wages war. And this is hard for us. Now, Revelation chapter 14. The answer, when will you avenge our blood? The avenger shows up. And he looks a little bit like Hulk, or the Hulk. He's just not green, but he's angry and he's big. Revelation 14.1. Then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I don't have time to go into this. You need to go back and listen to last week's message. I do not believe the number 666 is literal. I believe it's a number, but I believe it's trying to say something. And the same way that seven shows up all over the book, we get to six, and six isn't seven. And what, the, what God's trying to say here through Revelation is simply this. You'll be on one of two teams. You'll either be on God's team, you'll be complete, having the Holy Spirit as your seal of salvation, or you'll be on the enemy's team, and you'll have the number six. But in the same way that God is holy, 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 the same way he's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we see six repeated three times to show that Satan is just trying to be a mimicry, a, a mockery, a parody of God. And it's a cheap imitation. However, that's the reason for the number 666. So here we see in Revelation 14.1, it's saying anybody who's marked with God is good. They're in the 144,000, the whole number of people who will be in heaven one day. But not just in heaven, they'll be in Mount Zion. And Mount Zion, Zion is a word in the Old Testament used to refer to Jerusalem. It comes throughout Old Testament. It's very fascinating. Certain prophets never use the word while others are obsessed with the word. We get into the New Testament, there's only two places we find the word Zion. In Hebrews 12.22 and here in Revelation 14.1. That's a because both of them are talking about heaven. Heaven is the place of the presence of God, just like the temple in Jerusalem was supposed to be the place of the presence of God. What both writers are trying to say is very powerful. It's that God is not so much about a location. God is about his presence. Where his presence is, there is his kingdom, his name, his city, his people. Revelation 14, 2. And I heard a sound from heaven like the sound coming from the speakers at Kingsway Christian Church. And it was as loud as a roar of mighty ocean waves or rolling of thunder. And it was like the sound of many harpists playing together. By the way, if you think it's too loud, it's biblical. It's biblical worship is loud. I'm just saying, <laughs> send your notes to Red. Okay, verse 3. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. First of all, note this. Every time a new song, I think this is true, every time a new song, if it's not every time, it's almost. In the Old Testament, when we see new songs, they come because the people of God have been suffering and salvation is coming. And so they're singing a new song to God. So why does John say they sing a new song? Because they're just thanking. They're thanking God for being the Savior who has come to redeem them and save them from this earth. He's showing up to do this thing. And then we see the whole number, 144,000. And notice this. They keep themselves pure like virgins and they tell no lies. That means none of us are going to be in heaven. We're in trouble. My guess is everybody in here at some point or another has told a lie, whether on purpose or on accident. So what do I make of this passage? Well, like most things in Revelation, look at what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say is this, and this is huge, see, because believer in the room, this is one of the first messages for you. God expects you to live in a way that honors him with your body. 
There's only been one perfect person. His name is Jesus. You're not him. However, God does expect those who are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps to become like him. So we see this in Matthew 25. Jesus tells a story about these 10 virgins who are waiting for the groom to come to go into the wedding feast, and, and five have enough oil in their lamps to keep it burning, and five don't. And the groom shows up, and the five who are ready go with him, and the other five aren't there, and they go in, and he shuts the door, and it's too late for the other five. And there's a message in that for the church. There's a message for us. Look, one day the groom is going to come, and when he shows up, whoever's ready gets to go with him into the banquet, and whoever isn't ready doesn't go in. Now, don't start confusing these theological doctrinal messages with, well, therefore I'm saved by what I do. Oh, no, but Jesus does expect you to be ready and waiting and paying attention. And most of us think, and not just believer, unbeliever like most of us think, I have time. I got another day, a week, a month, a year on my deathbed. I'll make sure I get it right, right, because God loves me. He'll forgive me, so I'll do that. And what if you don't? What if the next person walked through that door is somebody with a bomb strapped to? What if it's a heart attack while you're sitting here or a car accident on the way home? You just don't know. What if one day before the service is even over, say, the ceiling peels back and there's Jesus and he returns and we hear the loud trumpet, whatever it actually looks like, I don't know, but it happens and now it's time. And you thought, I got more time, I got more time, but you don't. You don't. See, believer, It's important for you to be standing in heaven unashamed and clothed because you prepared yourself. If you need to do business with God between now and the time the service is over, do it. Please do it. Because what's going to happen next ought to terrify you enough to make you want to. All right, here we go. Verse 6. And I saw another angel flying through the sky carrying the eternal good news. This is just the good news about Jesus. It's eternal because before the lamb was slain, before the foundations of the world, the lamb was slain because Jesus has been committed to this. So it's eternal. It's good news going on forever and ever and ever. He is the son of God who loves us. He loves us. That's huge. You've got to hang on to that. The eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world. Notice who they belong to. Not to heaven, but where? They're the earth dwellers. How do we know? Because they come from every nation, tribe, language, and people. How many? which means completely. And what happens? Fear God, this angel says. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. But wait a minute. If he's sitting as judge then, then what is he right now? John, the guy who wrote this book, actually told us the answer to this question. John chapter 3, verse 16. Take a look at this. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. The phrase here, gave, means he gave him as a sacrifice so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Now, here's the answer. Who is Jesus now? Verse 17. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to... So what is Jesus right now? Not judge, what? Savior. That's the whole point. When Jesus came, between the first coming and the second coming, Jesus is not the judge of the world. He will be, but he's not yet. Right now, he's the savior of the world. See, before we get into the wrath of God poured out and it's grotesque and it's gruesome, you need to understand this part of what God is doing. He is being patient. It's what the Bible calls long-suffering. He is being slow to anger, slow to wrath. By the way, think about this. When James tells us to listen first, speak 
second and be slow to get angry. He's just saying, be like your heavenly father who is patient, who wants what's best for you. He has your best interests in mind. And so he's come and sent his son as the savior of the world. But there will come a day somewhere in the future, maybe even very soon, where the savior part will stop and the judgment part will begin. And it's there in John 3. Look at 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. This is the message of what we're about to read. I want you to get this, because see, when most of us start to talk about the wrath of God, I know if you're visiting in here, I know, I get it. Just please give me 15, 20 more minutes, 30, whatever it takes. And then you can wrestle with God, but I'm just asking you to consider this. See, we tend to put God on trial. But God, see, here's how the conversation devolves into a logical one instead of a biblical one. But see, you don't know my sister, my cousin, my nephew, my kid, my parents. Man, they were such good people. They weren't like that guy who strapped the bomb on his chest in the concert in Paris. They weren't like the guy who went into the pastor's house and shot his wife. They weren't like that. I mean, they, they never hurt anybody. I mean, they were just nice. They weren't a rapist. They weren't murderous. They weren't big thieves. See, this is, this is the heart of the gospel. And if you don't get this, you miss the whole thing and it makes no sense. Paul says this, if you break one of the laws, so take all the Old Testament laws, there's over 300 or so laws, I can't remember the numbers, massive. Take all those laws of things we're supposed to do and things we're not supposed to do. If you break even one, Paul says, then the weight of all of them is upon you. And you go, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, first of all, nobody's ever broke just one, let's be honest. But what Paul is saying is even if you had broke just one, the gap between you and God would be so big there'd be no way to overcome it because God is holy, holy, holy. He's perfect always. He never messes up. He never makes a mistake. He always loves you. He's always faithful, but he's also just. And because you have rebelled against him and sinned against him and turned against him, it doesn't matter if it's a small lie, a small deceit, or if you picked up a knife and murdered somebody. The reality is you created a gulf between you and God. And his fury burns. Now, you could satisfy that fury of God in one of two ways. Take up your biggest weapon you have. Go buy the biggest gun, tank, plane, or nuke bomb you can find and go to war with God. That's next week. Or you humble yourself, you fall on your knees, you fall at the foot of the cross, and you say, I need a savior because I'm not equipped. No matter what, the fury of God is getting poured out on someone. It's either getting poured out on you or it's getting poured out on God's son, Jesus. Remember when Jesus is in the garden right before he goes to the cross and he's on his knees and he's broken. He's got sweat, blood sweat pouring from his brows and he's crying out, God, if there's any other way, take this cross from me, God, please. And he's crying out to God and he says, please, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. The cup throughout Old Testament metaphors stands for the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus is sitting there saying, I know I have to drink this cup. I know we've always planned on me drinking this cup. If there's any other way than me drinking this cup, fine. And then Jesus finally strengthened by some angels gets up and says, okay, let's do this. I must drink the fury of the wrath of God so that you don't have to. That's why John 3, look at verses uh, 19 to 21. The judgment of God is based on this fact. God's light, that's Jesus, came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. 
And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. I'm begging you, friend, before you leave here today, please come into the light. Please, I'm begging you, do not, do not walk out here without somebody other than you drinking the fury of the wrath of God. His name is Jesus. Revelation 14, look at verse uh, 10. We better start at nine, it's the middle of a sentence. Sorry, verse nine. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, anyone who worships the beast or a statue or who accepts the mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur and the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshiped the beast and his statue and accepted the mark of his name. This is huge. I want to show you this. This is what an ancient uh, <coughs> wine press would have looked like. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I just want to show this to you real quick. So this is kind of, they would have had, you know, put all these grapes down here. There's a hole down there. They would have stomped on all these grapes, and the juice would have flowed down, and then it would have looked, here's a better way to kind of explain it to you. So if you imagine, a lot of times they would cut these a limestone. There'd be squares or rectangles or circles. They'd fill this part up with the grapes. you got these people trouncing around up here, and then the, the wine would come down here, fill up these vats over here with the, well, actually be juice at that point, and as it sat out in the sun, it would ferment and turn to wine. They'd scoop them up in these jars, or sometimes they'd scoop them up in these little cloth bags you may have seen before. This is why when Jesus comes along, he says you can't put new wine in old wineskins because what happens is the grape juice goes in it ferments expands the bag you can't put more and they're just burst open so Jesus comes along with the gospel he says don't try to stick the gospel inside the box of the old testament this is a new thing I'm doing I'm pouring out my grace I'm pouring out my mercy you can't even fit it in there but this is what God is trying to paint this picture of and he's saying except this isn't grapes in here this is my enemies in here and this is me stomping on them and what's being poured out into the vats is their blood because they are drinking my full fury. Oh God, open our hearts to see that you are a just God. And that God rapists and molesters and murderers and adulterers and idolaters and the greedy, and the gossiper, and the slanderer, and the one caught in immorality, and the one who uses their tongue to tear down, and the one who deceives and lies, all of them, all of us, deserve this, Father, for we have sinned against you. God, I just pray right now, would you please open our heart to how much you love us when we gaze upon the cross of Christ. God, help us to see how much you love us by pouring out all that wrath on him. God, I still pray for the rest of this message. Help me to make clear who you are. And God, right now, convict hearts in Jesus' name. Revelation, uh, this huge, another message for the believer. 1412. 13, this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently. 
obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down, blessed, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. This is a beatitude, beatitude where Jesus' first sermon, Sermon on the Mount, he gives a bunch of blessed are they. Guess what? There are seven of them in the book of Revelation. Wow, almost like John knew what he was doing. But notice what John says there to us. He says, this means anybody who wants to live for Jesus, verse 12, they must endure persecution patiently and continue to obey God's commands, not losing their faith. Jesus says it this way. Jesus says, if you're gonna come after me, you better weigh the cost because following me is gonna cost you something. Who dares to go build a tower and sets out to build a tower and goes, well, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough stuff. You'd build half the tower and then you'd be made fun of. You'd be a fool for doing it that way. This is the same concept of what's going on here. point that God is trying to make. He's saying, look, don't you dare follow after me and not realize that this is going to cost you something. Believer in this room, I need you to hear this. What God is calling you to do is to live between the then and then it's soon to come. Whenever you were born until the day you die or he returns, you are to live your life in full submission to him. And guess what? It means opening up your home. It means opening up your family. It means opening up your bank account. It means opening up your lives. It means opening up your resources. It means opening up all that God has given you and saying, my home is not on earth. My home is in heaven. So what does it take, God? And I can't answer this for every single one of you. Some of you need to wrestle with, God, where can I serve you in a great ministry in this community or here in this church? God, how can I take what you've given me and use it to bless a family member? I love it. One of the baptisms today was this man right here bringing one of his family members into his home as now his godson, and he led him into the baptistry and baptized him today. And I give glory to God because if you sat down and you interviewed him, you'd be like, dude, you can't do this. In fact, I gave him this advice about a year ago. I said, you can't do this. You don't have the margin right now. You're starting school and you got a job. And you, got, you can't do this. And he's like, I have to. I'm like, I know, but you shouldn't. Praise God he didn't listen to me, but he listened to God. And you got to figure this out. It's hard. It's hard. I'm not trying to say burn yourself out and don't care about yourself or your family. No, I'm trying to say get on your knees and humble submission to God and say, until my king returns, this is your kingdom, this is your world, and whatever you want, God, whatever you want, I'm all in. I'm all in. And then watch what God does as he breaks your hold on this world. But now, for the time that I have left. I want to talk to the unbeliever for a minute. I want to read you some passages, try to make sense of them, and then uh, I'm going to call you to action, all right? Just be ready. Verse 14, John says, Then I saw a white cloud. Remember, Jesus rode on a white cloud up into heaven, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. Jesus' most common name for himself was the Son of Man. He's just trying to say, I saw Jesus come. He had a gold crown on his head. That means he's ruling with authority. He had a sharp sickle in his hand. A sharp uh, a sickle would have been like a, a rounded blade, very sharp. They would use him often to cut wheat and other things. The other, and then another angel came from the temple. It's coming out of the presence of God. And he shouted to the one sitting on the cloud. So now a message is being delivered to the sun. Swing the sickle for the time of the harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. After that, another angel came from the temple in heaven. He, is also, <clears throat> he also had a sharp sickle. 
And then another angel who had the power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with a sharp sickle, swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth, for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. This is the whole point of what's going on here. Jesus tells a story, Matthew chapter 23, verses 24 to 30. You can look it up or it's in the app. And in this story, Jesus talks about how there's a farmer and he has a a farm and this is the world and he plants some seed and some of the seed takes takes hold and it produces some wheat. However, another person comes along and plants some other seed. This would be Satan and this produces only weeds. And so an angel comes along, this would be a messenger comes along and says, hey farmer, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to pull up the weeds? And the farmer says, no, 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 leave the weeds right next to the wheat until the last days because if you pull them up now you'll pull some wheat up with them so leave them side by side and on the last day when this time the angels will come with their sickle and they'll gather up the harvest and this is exactly what John is telling us now except for that we've got this harvest of some who will go to righteousness and some who will go to judgment Revelation 15 verse 1 then I saw in heaven another marvelous event of great significance Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire. We saw the glass sea earlier, I think it was chapter five, maybe chapter four, but this time it's mixed with fire. It's this idea of it's like it's about to explode forth with the judgment of God. And it stood, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious. Now we're just calling 144,000 all the people, which is what they are, over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb. Here's the song. Great and marvelous are your works. O Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. Your righteous deeds have been revealed. What this is trying to say, get this, God is great and he's big and he's marvelous and his judgment, notice this word here in verse three, is just. His judgment is just. Why is his judgment just, the one that he's bringing? Because he has been patient. He gave his own son as an example. He sent the church out in in mass numbers to the world to build hospitals and orphanages and care for the sick and the poor and the hungry and to love the world. And even though many of them have been arrested and beheaded and thrown in prison, they continue to love and not attack back. And so now the king has showed up and said, I am just in all my ways because the judgment that I am come, that I am bringing, did not come without patience. The judgment that I am bringing did not come without suffering. So we don't have the right to point at God and say, how dare you? He has the right to say, how dare you? Mark Moore says it this way. I love this quote by Mark. I think I took it out of my notes. You guys have it up there, the second quote by Mark Moore. Here it is. He is a fool who demands God to love rebels above his own righteousness. And he is a double fool who believes he can enforce such a demand. All of our wishful thinking and politically correct platitudes will not alter the very nature of God even a little. In other words, wanting God to be something other than what he is won't work. And if you've ever been a part of a church or a conversation where somebody says, I just don't think God is like that. See, I think God is love. I think God is love too. I just think love demands justice. 
God would be downright evil if he allowed sex trafficking to go unpunished. I'm sorry, he would be. And I don't mind saying that because he already tells me he won't do it. He will go punished, either in the blood of Jesus or in the blood of the evildoer. Either way. But he's patient. He doesn't want that for anybody. I've said this before, guys. I'll keep saying it. I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish hell on Saddam Hussein, although that's likely where he is. It's not my call. Thank God it's not my call. I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish hell on ISIS. I wouldn't. But there's probably going to be hell to pay for many of them. Let's wrap up here. Chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel who had authority over all water saying, You are just, O Holy One, who is and who always was, because you have sent these judgments. Wait a minute. What's missing in that phrase? He is the God who is and was and is to come. But all we have here is, who is and who always was. Why? Because he came. He's here. The judgment is now. There's no more time. He doesn't need to say all three because this is the moment. It's now here, and he is, and he was, and I have come. And the judgment coming with him. Jump down to verse 7. Or sorry, verse 6. Since you shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, you have given them blood to drink. It is their just reward. And I heard a voice from the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are just and true. I read those backwards. Verse 11. And they cursed. Hear this. They cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. What John is making absolutely clear is that all of these judgments in the book of Revelation, wars and famines and disease and chaos and backbiting and devouring and Satan and the attacks of Satan and all of these things are God's way of warning people. And even though he keeps being patient and saying, look, the world is out of control. You can't control the world. You're a part of the problem. You need a savior. They will not turn and I don't want that to be anybody in this room but I just know that it will be somebody in this room or listening to this online is going to have a hard heart and no matter what I say or what proof I put out that they're going to say yeah but one of my friends is a, um, a Christian counselor and he, re- he, he works primarily with people struggling with homosexuality especially gay men um, He was raped and abused growing up. He was a gay man for a while, now married, has adult children, and has a ministry to help walk other men through their struggle. And he talked about this guy he met with once, and the guy was in there, and um, he was in a bad way, covered in sores from his AIDS. And the guy starts hitting on him and flirting with him and suggesting that they do some immoral things. And he finally kicked him out and said, we're done, I can't help you. And I heard that story and I just, he was just telling me, he said, Matt, there are just some people, it does not matter what happens, they will not turn. Listen, friend, if, uh, 
If you don't have Jesus and you keep noticing bad things happening, you got two choices. Shake your fist at God. Why are you doing this to me? Or open your fist to God. I need you. Help me. And look, if you're sitting here today, there's only one answer you need to know. Do I need a Savior or can I get there on my own? And if you know that much, just that much about Jesus, then today you can accept him. And I beg you to do it. Don't go home. Don't wait till next week. Don't give it a month. If you know, if you know, look, I don't know the answers. I don't understand all this baptism stuff and Revelation and 666 and Armageddon. I don't get what it all means, but I know this. I know this. I need a Savior. I'm telling you, his name is Jesus. Today, we can explain the rest to you. You've got a lifetime to figure that out, but would you just consider, before the service is over, we'll tell you when and how, taking that first step and saying, today, today, I'm gonna take that first step. And here's why, I'll close with this. Revelation 16, 15. Look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. If you have a Bible that does the red letter thing, red letters mean Jesus is speaking, and you'll notice this is in bright red letters, just like my awesome Ohio State shirt, just saying. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus is saying, I will come unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. In other words, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, he takes all that you've done and he clothes you with himself. Paul says it this way. When we go into the waters of baptism, we are clothed with Christ. He covers our nakedness and our shame. It doesn't matter what you've done. I don't care what you've done. I mean, I care, but I only care that you come to the Savior who says, let me cover your nakedness. Let me hide your shame from the gazing eyes of this world. I do not judge you anymore. Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So on that last day, while your enemy, Satan, may stand there and say, yeah, but do you know that he did this and she did that and this one time and can you believe they're the worst of the worst? And your Savior will stand there and say, covered in my blood. It is finished. Father God in heaven, God, I pray that every man, woman, child right now who has never taken that step of faith, whether it's in this room or listening online, I pray, God, would they just fall right now to their knees and say, help me, save me. God, I pray that they would take that next step and follow through in baptism, being clothed with Christ to hide their nakedness and their shame and to fill them up with your Holy Spirit. God, I pray right now as we take this bread and this juice Remind us of your faithfulness and your love. You could have, you should have destroyed all of us, but you didn't because in your loving kindness, you chose to pour out your spirit. You took our shame and gave us the greatest gift ever. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name.